I'm Peter Madlin, and you are listening to Teacher's Lounge. Right up top, I want to invite you to be a part of our show. You know, we've all had educators in our lives who helped shape who we are, whether it's a coach, a counselor, or an English teacher. And we want to hear about the folks who've inspired you and people in your community who deserve a spotlight. So email us with your nominations at teacherslounge at niu.edu. It's how we've been getting all of our educators on the show for the past three years of Teacher's Lounge. Again, that email address that you can send your nominations to is teacherslounge at niu.edu. This week on the show, we are bringing you a classic episode pulled from the illustrious Teacher's Lounge Library. Because if you're hearing this on the Friday it goes up, you can also hear our Teacher's Lounge radio show here on WNIJ at 11 a.m. for all those early morning listeners. Now, right now on the podcast, we are revisiting my 2020 conversation with James Cohen. He's a bilingual education teacher at Northern Illinois University and was named 2021 Outstanding International Educator by the University. He's also a former Fulbright scholar who's lived in several different countries across the world and taught in Uruguay. But living there for two years and four months in Sri Lanka changed my entire trajectory from teaching uh, native English speakers American Lit to teaching non-native English speakers English and culture and this kind of thing. And I've never looked back. I mean, those two years transformed how I view the world. It transformed me, my identity. It transformed everything that I do. During this conversation, which actually was the last in-person chat I had for the show pre-pandemic, I talked to James a lot about his time in Sri Lanka, in the Peace Corps, along with his time teaching in Uruguay. And we dove deep into his experiences with reverse culture shock, bilingual education, as well as the research, writing, and teaching he's done about undocumented students. So I mentioned that James spent time as a Fulbright scholar in Uruguay. Well, around the time of this conversation, Uruguayan teachers were on Fulbright in Northern Illinois learning from the local bilingual teachers, and I got to learn a bit about the cultural exchange inside and outside the classroom. Samuel Costa is the only teacher at a small school in rural Uruguay close to the border of Brazil. His 11 students range in age from kindergarten all the way to sixth grade. And he's not just the only teacher, he's the only adult, period. So he has to clean and be a chef. Samuel makes his class a home-cooked breakfast and lunch every day. And that's on top of meeting the typical academic standards. To learn about what he does, like I cannot complain about my job. That's Megan Forty. She's a bilingual third grade teacher at Little John Elementary in DeKalb. Samuel has been shadowing her in her class, and she has also been hosting him at her house for the past few weeks. There are 21 Uruguayan teachers spread across the DeKalb and Elgin school districts. They're learning bilingual ed best practices, but they don't all just teach English. They teach across content areas from math and science to sign language. Some, like Samuel, teach in a rural school, while others teach in the capital city of Montevideo. James Cohen is an associate professor of ESL bilingual education at Northern Illinois University. So we have the whole gamut, and to see them intermingling, the, the exchange is just tremendous. Cohen helped facilitate getting the Fulbright teachers up to Illinois. He was a Fulbright scholar in Uruguay just last year. The Uruguayans are in Illinois for about a month. 
When they landed in Chicago, it was snowing. Selene Aria is one of the Uruguayan elementary school teachers. For many of us, it has been the, the very first time we saw snow, so we were very excited about it. Aria and the other teachers spent about a week in Chicago before their shadowing commenced. They got to see a Chicago Bulls game and visit some of the city's museums. Aria says the amount of choice at stores and restaurants in the U.S. is notable, and that prices for some teaching material are significantly lower in the U.S. than in Uruguay. Another of the teachers, Patricia Betancourt, agreed. She says an English hardcover that costs $7 in Illinois could be 70 or 80 in Uruguay. So the teachers have been stocking up. Emily Quaid is a Little John teacher and former Fulbright scholar herself. She also helped with some of the translation for this story. When they show up at a bookstore, they're like, oh, here comes Selene, careful. <laughs> Betacut says even though the resources and equipment might be different, the challenges that persist in education are the same for them in Uruguay as they are in DeKalb. And she says during her shadowing, conversations about finding solutions to global issues, balancing class resources or supporting special needs students, help the teachers bond. James Cohen says the Uruguayan teachers are also presenting in their classrooms and going to educational presentations at NIU. I've never seen a group of people with such passion for, for knowledge. There are some differences between the two nations' education systems. Cohen, who was in Uruguay last year, says the way foreign language is taught is very different. He says some programs send instructional videos and lessons to smaller rural schools where teachers don't even speak that language. Elementary school teachers who don't speak any English are teaching kids how to speak English, and they're learning English alongside the kids. The power dynamics have completely shifted. Back at Little John, Megan Forty says it didn't take long for the students and Samuel to get comfortable, even though he doesn't speak any English. The kids immediately, you know, gave him that respect, which you have to earn. So within a week, they were saying, Maestro, teacher, don't go. The teachers were to go back to Uruguay after a final ceremony. Cohen and the other teachers said they were expecting lots of tears as they left their friends and host families. The most meaningful thing that I took from this experience is people. Selene Adia says their passion for students easily bridged that perceived gap. Okay, now it's time for my conversation with NIU professor James Cohen, and we're going to start off talking a little bit about his time in Uruguay. I think I visited 15 out of the 19 departments or states of the whole country. So I worked with like over 450 teachers and doing presentations everywhere. It was, it was wonderful. I mean, it, life-changing. I learned so much. It is really one of those experiences, because I think I saw in one of those, you know, one of the NIU articles about your Fulbright scholarship that you said that it was one of the highlights of your career in education. Absolutely. Hands down. Hands down. You know, it's interesting because they don't have a lot of people of color in the country. You know, the majority of the people were, majority of the indigenous population was killed off, you know, a long time ago. And uh, they do have some African Uruguayans who live in Montevideo and in a town named Melo. And so most of the country is from Italian or Spanish heritage. So they don't see a lot of people of color there. And when I asked about racism, for example, or discrimination, no, 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 we don't have any of that here. We don't have any of that. But then when I went to Montevideo and started interviewing teachers, conducting focus groups, because one of my reasons for being there was not only to work with teachers, but I conducted two studies as well, uh, looking for their, basically a, a needs assessment. And when I was in Montevideo and when I was in Melo, where there are substantial 
African Uruguayan populations, absolutely, there's racism and discrimination there. It's every country that has been colonized has racism in it. Actually, every country period has racism in it. It's just yeah, and I know that some of your work too does focus on you know helping and teaching. Uh, immigrant students, undocumented students is something you've been doing research on for, for quite a while, right? Yes, yes. It's a passion of mine. When I was writing my dissertation or conducting the study for my dissertation at Arizona State University, it turned out that all of my students that I was interviewing, they just came out and told me that they were undocumented. Every single one of them? Every single one of them. <laughs> and uh, it was, pre- at the time, it was before... Immigra- immigration became a really hot topic. And like right when I, when I started analyzing the data, that is when the huge marches in Arizona and around the country in Chicago, the huge undocumented immigrant marches, you know, and pro-undocumented immigrant started happening. And my, there wasn't a lot of, a lot of uh, articles yet written on this topic. And my dissertation committee said, you cannot write or mention that they're undocumented in your dissertation. So, because they were afraid for these students. Of course. So afterwards, you know, after I left and, you know, a few years passed, then I started writing about, they're, they're safe now. So it's, there's no way of connecting what I was doing, where I was doing with these kids. So it's, it's much safer for them now. There's no way of knowing who they are. Right. And it's got to be strange because, I mean, it's, it's a strange time, obviously, in our national discourse about immigration and undocumented students. And this is something you've been thinking about for a really long time. And you've got definitely an interesting perspective on it coming, looking at it through the lens of higher ed. And I'm thinking for you, is it, is it weird to have you know, something that you've studied, something that you've been thinking about a long time become so politicized? It's not weird. I, I was wondering when it was going to happen. So you would expect it? Oh, absolutely. Obviously, especially yeah. in Arizona, right? Yeah, absolutely. It's, this is, I, haven't, I didn't expect it to be so controversial and so divisive as it is now. Our current administration has, a, has as most people know, has a, a conflicted relationship with the truth, especially when it comes to sanctuary cities and undocumented immigrants. James, do you think, because I was, I was thinking about that, and I was thinking about how, you know, you've got the, the social justice uh, summer camp that you do. Yes. And, and that's another term that's become politicized. And I'm wondering that even if the conversations are controversial, do you think that all of this national attention and this national discourse maybe can lead to at least more conversations about these topics and uh, conversations about equity, which can in the long run be a good thing? Well, something that I've noticed is a lot of people have become emboldened to say their beliefs. My students, for example, cannot say there is no racism in the United States. No. They cannot say that anymore. And they used to. You know, when I remember after Barack Obama was elected president and I was watching MSNBC, Chris, and Chris Matthews says, are we in a post-racial society now? And I'm looking at him going, what? We're not, of course not. And what I tell my students is, you know, I... I try my hardest, honestly. I sincerely try my hardest to live in the world of facts and not ideology. And so when I'm teaching, like, for example, I'm teaching two classes on, on um, the foundations of minority language education this semester. And these two classes are about the, you know, what are bilingual programs? What, how do we educate kids who don't speak English really well yet? How do we do that? What are the laws? What are the policies? What are the, what's the research? What are the programs? And 
it's really quite amazing because the research is so clear that bilingual education works. It's so clear. I mean, black and white. We've had longitudinal studies for over 20 years dealing with millions and millions and millions of kids. And yet people still say, no, we're in America. We need to speak English. It's not about speaking English. It's about learning the content. The kids are going to learn English. English is not the issue. It's the, getting the content, getting literacy. That's what's important. And then when I, when I say these things and the students are reading the research, the non-biased research, right, the empirical data, the students say, well, I don't understand, Dr. Cohen, I don't understand why we're still having so many English-only programs all over the country. And then I just turn around and I write in capital letters on the board, ideology. That's the only response I have. People are believing that English only is better than bilingual education because of ideology. There's no facts to support, none to support an English only environment. And to be honest, we're, we're cutting our toes off. It's very difficult to walk when you cut your toes off, right? How do you we're, mean that? With it, the, you we're know, cutting I mean. our toes off because the human body, the human brain is literally hardwired to be not just bilingual, but to be multilingual. And so to say you need to be American, you need to speak English only, or to be an American, you need to speak English, period. We are going against nature. We're going against literally our, our human brain. The United States is one of the only countries in the world that advocates for monolingualism in the name of this ideological paradigm of, of assimilation. I'm just thinking about, you know, especially with the, the research that you've done and the teaching you've done about our relationship with language in the U.S. and how that's different from what it is abroad. And that is the difference. It's not necessarily how it's being taught. It's the mind frame that people are approaching languages. In Uruguay, they have, <laughs> you know, they, everybody is learning Spanish because that's the native language of the country. And everybody is learning at least one second language. You go to Europe, everyone's at least bilingual oftentimes, most of the time, multilingual. You go to any other country. I've been to, I've been around the world several, several times. And I've taught in seven countries, lived in many of those, in, in all those seven countries for extended periods of time. And by the concept of language, the concept of bilingualism is so big. Yet in the United States, we have this, ad, we're, we're, we're linguophobic. We're, it's like we're afraid of languages. Kids come to the United States, immigrants come to the United States, and they enter our schools. Oh, you need to speak English. Well, all right, at the expense of your own language, at, at the expense of your L1, you have to learn L2, which is English. So they, we hammer out their language kinder, from kindergarten all the way to ninth grade. Then in ninth grade, they go visit the counselor, and the counselor says, you know, you need to learn another language to get into college. Yeah. And the students are like, well, you just hammered it out for the last nine years. I don't have that other language anymore. Where's the logic in that? So you've taught in a bunch of different countries. You've lived in seven. Can you kind of, can you rattle those off for me? Because now I'm just curious as to, as to where those places that you've lived in an extended period of time. Well, I've lived in uh, Sri Lanka for two and a half years. I was in the Peace Corps. Uh, so two years and four months. Then I was in Japan for a year. I was in... Taiwan for three weeks, Uruguay three months, and Mexico for three months. I taught at a university. And so do you speak multiple languages then? Uh, well, I, I was able to speak Sinhala from Sri Lanka when I was living there for sure. Yeah. I was at a high intermediate level. Spoken, you don't get the opportunity to yeah, speak it much anymore? Yeah, I don't anymore. speak Sinhalese anymore, so I've lost that. When I was in Japan, I, I was it's pretty, 
decent, actually. And then, of course, Spanish. I, I can speak Spanish now. I wouldn't say I'm fluent, but I... You can hold conversations. A, easily, yeah. I'm a yeah. high intermediate level in Spanish. Is that something so. that you would want to keep expanding to? Are you curious about learning new languages, that sort of thing, or especially or keeping up with the ones that you do have? Obviously, Spanish is probably one that you can more easily keep up to date with and, yeah. and speak more often. Obviously, the, you know, the other ones might be a little bit more difficult. but Absolutely. Yeah, I, I really enjoy speaking Spanish, and it's... It's a great opportunity for you with all the Uruguayan Absolutely. <laughs> teachers, Absolutely, and right? I, I realized how, even though I'm, I was tested at the high intermediate level, I realized very quickly that I'm, there's so many things I don't know still, and the frustration I was, I was experiencing trying to... I, like One of the nights that they were here, they arrived on Wednesday morning, and at Friday night I did a presentation to them on implicit and explicit biases, and I did it in Spanish. <laughs> oh, man, <laughs> yeah. that, it was tough. It was really, really difficult, but they helped me, and uh, it, it worked out beautifully. So, I don't know. Yeah, I enjoy languages very much. I'm curious from when you were younger, what was the thing that really sparked your, your interest in, edu- in language as something that not only you're interested in, but as something that you wanted to pursue professionally? I, when I was younger, like in high school, I, I wasn't really interested. I, just, I studied French in high school because that's what you do when you want to get into college. And I had always wanted to go into the Peace Corps. And so when... You would I, always want to go in the Peace Corps. Why? I, I don't know. My mom told me that since I was in like seventh grade or something, I saw a commercial on TV and, and my whole middle and high school, all I was talking about, I don't remember this, but she said all I would talk about was going into the Peace Corps. So when I got into college, I went to UW-Madison for undergrad and they have a huge Peace Corps recruiting fair there every year. And so I went to the fair and... I got a teaching job in Maryland, actually, for one year, teaching high school English, American Lit. And in the meantime, I was applying for the Peace Corps, because back then, I don't know how long it takes now, but back then in the early 90s, it took about a year to get in. Yeah. So they had to do a background check. And, they had to, and, and so anyway, when I, 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 I was in Sri Lanka from 91 to 93. And when I was there, picking up uh, Singhala was... Tremendous! I really, really enjoyed that experience because just it, it taught you, it gave you an inroad to the culture, it gave you an inroad to how people believe, right? It gave you a, a, a deeper understanding of who these, who these folks are. It makes you feel like you're a part of that experience Absolutely. and that culture, right? Absolutely. And I felt a lot more connected. Once I was able to, you know, I was living with homestays, and, which totally changes and it, it enhances any kind of experience, right? So when I was there, I was, it was the best two years of my life. Was the Peace Corps what you expected it to Absolutely. be? Absolutely. And the Peace Corps is, I highly recommend it to everybody because it opened up so many doors for me. And not just, not just employ, you know, employment reasons, but it opened up this whole new world. This, like my parents and I, my parents and my siblings and I, we traveled a lot when we were kids. Abroad? Or? Yeah, traveled abroad. Really? Yeah. And so that introduced me to living, or not living, but experiencing other countries. But living there for two years and four months in Sri Lanka changed my entire trajectory from teaching uh, native English speakers, American lit, to teaching non-native English speakers, English and culture and this kinds of thing. And I've never looked back. I mean, those two years transformed how I view the world. It transformed me, my identity. It transformed everything that I do. And I've never looked back because since the, those two years, you know, I've been to, I don't know, I, 
I think I counted like over 37 countries I've been to now. And every country I go to, I'm learning more about myself. And you're experiencing these things that are very different than what you're used to. You start learning, it's like, well, we don't do that in the United States. We do it this way. Ah, oh, okay. And it, it makes you, it deepens your and heightens your awareness of who you are as a cultural being. And it deepens your understanding of your identities. And I, I, I love, that's why I love traveling so much. Right, because I feel like it's not even just the overall experience of different cultures in terms of like, you know, food and all the things we think about when we think about culture, but also just different mindsets, different ways of thinking about the world. Well, and see, that's the thing. You know, when I teach the multicultural class and I interact with teachers in the schools, when they think of multiculturalism, they think of dress and they think of food and they think of music and and language. Very and tangible things. Tangible things, things that you could see. But if you think about it, and yeah, that's definitely part of culture. That's a, you know, to use the iceberg metaphor. Yeah. That's the part of culture that everyone sees and hears and tastes. Right. And who doesn't want to talk about food, right? Exactly. Yeah. yeah food's wonderful. Yeah. I'm definitely a foodie. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. But if you go below the, the water surface, the surface of the water, and, you know, the iceberg is much larger underneath the water than it is on top. Right? It, the foundation of, cult, of culture is how are you viewing child rearing? How are you viewing identity? Even just how do you interact with people? Your, your, prox, your proxemics, right? How close are you? Your eye contact, all of these things. What does mental health mean to you? And I mean, all these issues like, are the foundation of the culture that we see on a, day, uh, on a daily basis. It's, to really understand culture, you have to dig below the surface. Seeing the, the whys, answering the whys we do what we do. Do you remember coming home from the Peace Corps and this, seeing that and coming back here and being like, wow, that's weird. I forgot that America's like this or that we do the things in a certain way. I had major reverse cultural shock when I came back. Do you remember specific ways? And uh, Yeah, just like one in particular, or two in particular. I, one was I was so much calmer and slower, like slowed down and less uptight when I was living there. And then when I came back and the, the fast pace of American, you know, United States was, it, it gave me a tremendous amount of anxiety. Also, I remember like a little thing. It was in, the United, in Sri Lanka at the time, I don't know if it's, I was there from 91 to 93. So I'm sure it's changed by now. Uh, who knows if it's changed, but I haven't been back. Uh, but back when, that, when I was there, the only men who wore shorts were or the only men, males who wore shorts were kids and prisoners. Men never wore shorts. So then I came back, I was, it was summertime, and I remember riding my bike and having jeans on. And I'm thinking, why am I wearing jeans? It's so hot. So I turned around and I went back and I put on a pair of shorts and I thought, oh, that's why I'm wearing jeans because I haven't been, ha- haven't been able to wear jeans for the last two and a half years, or haven't been able to wear shorts for the last two and a half years. You know, this kind yeah, of thing. It was, exactly. It's that one of those, those little things that really get you thinking. You're not looking around at other people wearing shorts and you're like, why are there so many prisoners out here? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah well, I wasn't thinking like that. No, but no, yeah, I'm it just was, kidding. Yeah, yeah. It, yeah, yeah, makes sense. Do you have a desire to go back there? Oh, I would love to go back to Sri Lanka. Yeah. I, 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 yeah, I would love to. I just haven't had a chance haven't had the opportunity to do it yet. Did you ever have a moment abroad where you're like, you know what, I could really see myself staying here? Mm, I thought about it in Uruguay, actually. Really? Yeah, yeah. What was it about it? 
Uh, well, I country the culture. The people are just so friendly. I, I, I mean, I met him for like an hour and a half. I can definitely tell that they were extremely friendly. It, it, it was really. I don't think I've experienced that kind of um, sincere friendliness ever. And is it something that I mean for you as someone that thinks a lot about language and about culture and like these mindsets we talk about, where you're throwing around, you're like, why is that? Why are they so nice? <laughs> I, I don't I honestly don't know. I, I tried to get at it, but I, couldn't, <laughs> I, I wasn't there long enough, I guess. Let's, well, you know, people we can let life so, have one of those mysteries, yeah, right? Yeah. I mean, of course, no one, not everyone's perfect. No one's no. perfect. And the country is not perfect. They have their issues as well. But there was just something there that I found really heartening. Greatest lesson you've learned about education in that time? When I teach, I'm not just teaching content. I'm teaching paradigms, you know, how ways to shift your thinking. I'm teaching advocacy because I think it's, you can't just learn things for the sake of learning. Well, you can, but when you're a teacher, you want to learn things to be able to advocate for your kids, your students. All right. Well, we talked, we touched on this just a little bit, but I'm some, you've done a lot of traveling, both foodies here. Yeah. What's yeah. the best thing that you've ever had in your life abroad, especially? Well, or it could I, just be your favorite thing or yeah, something that sticks out to you in a certain way. My, the year I lived in Japan, in ter- food wise. Yeah. Oh, amazing. <laughs> I was running five miles a day to keep off the food. <laughs> what was keep it specifically? Oh, everything. My God, I would go to these round sushi houses during the day for lunch, and I would just eat and eat and eat. And yeah, sushi, raw fish, sashimi, you know, all these. It doesn't sound fattening, but the the quantities that I was eating. (laughs) Yeah, catch yourself a little bit. Oh, man. So yeah, yeah, the food in Japan was the best that I've had in in all of my... Well, I I have one little caveat. The grass-fed steaks in Uruguay and Argentina were amazing too. All right, James, that was it. Thanks so much for coming down and talking. Yeah, my pleasure. Perfect. If you want to nominate an educator in your life to be on the show just like James was, go ahead and email us at teacherslounge at niu.edu. You can also go there to send us your topic suggestions of other things that we should be talking about on this show. Wherever you're listening to this podcast, why don't you give us a rating or review? Why don't you subscribe? All that jazz helps us get more people listening and get more stories, more voices for people that we can talk to. Special thanks to the Rockford area band Kind Ofs for all the awesome music you get to hear in our show. Thanks to Spencer Tritt for the old Teacher's Lounge logo. Very much appreciated. I have been your host, Peter Medlin, and you have been listening to Teacher's Lounge. We will be back very, very soon. See ya.